When we began our series in 1 John a few weeks ago, I warned you that it would be confusing. And I think I've been true to my word. I think it, it has been. Um, it, it's been tricky just to follow John's train of thought at times. So rather than going from verse 1 of chapter 1 right through to the end of chapter 5, we have tried to, to look at it in a slightly different way. We have picked out themes, and we have noticed how John's teaching goes in circles where these themes crop up a number of times through his sermon. We've done three laps of John so far, and tonight we do the fourth, and I promise the last. So let's go one last time through this book this evening. It's immediately obvious to even a casual reader of 1 John what it's about. That's not the, the most difficult thing about the book. John's sermon is about love. He spends the majority of his time in his letter urging a congregation of God's people to love each other. But he doesn't leave it at that. John goes beyond these stark commands. He he warns us of reasons why it's difficult to keep love alive in our church communities. And we have spent, after spending a first week noticing the importance of love, we spent two weeks thinking of of two areas in particular where John thinks we're in danger, where love in our communities is in danger. He flags up two enemies of love, sin, we looked at that three weeks ago, and then a a fortnight ago, the the spirit of antichrist. Sin, particularly when it's unconfessed and therefore unforgiven, always destroys love in the community. Whenever we claim that we're a perfect congregation, that there's no sin among us, we're a bit like that, that young married couple who says, fight? Oh, we never fight. These couples, and some of them, I, I believe them actually. I think there are some married couples who don't ever fight. They, they genuinely might never go into conflict but it's also possible that they might never properly deal with the hurt and the pain that two human beings in close contact will always cause one another. Those aren't strong marriages. A strong marriage isn't one marked by the absence of conflict. A few people are smiling. I'll not not say any more. A strong marriage is one where we we know how to to move through the conflict, how to resolve it, how to ask for forgiveness and know that forgiveness giving. These marriages where people say, oh, we don't fight, they're the ones that surprise us when sometime later we've found that the whole thing has quietly and without any great fuss slipped into separation and divorce. In a way, we're surprised because they never fought. But it turns out that they've just gently drifted apart. And friends, I think it's the same in the church. Members of congregations who deny sinfulness, who think that our priority is to, to keep, keep any sense that we've ever had a fight, you know, to, to suppress that, these are the very congregations who'll just gently slide apart from each other. There would be a great deal of distance between members of these congregations. There would be no genuine closeness, and there certainly won't be any love. 
So John is insistent that we admit our sin, that we return eagerly to God asking for forgiveness, and that we then go to live the life of love. Two weeks ago, when we were last in this series, we thought about the second enemy of love that John flags up in his book. It's the spirit of Antichrist. Early in chapter 4, he tells us, every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll be at an advantage. It'll be hard for us to to unpack all of that again in a minute, just now. But whenever we thought about it for a while, we we thought, well, we're not going to come across Christian leaders who tell us that Jesus isn't the Christ, who tell us that he isn't the Son of God. There will be some uh, Christian leaders in some parts of the world who do that, but in our context, they are not many, and, and they tend to stand out like a sore thumb, and they're easily avoided. What's more likely to happen in our context is that we'll be confronted by ways of following Jesus that are super spiritual, that minimize the flesh and blood reality of human living. In today's church, we can expect, and I think we will more so in the future, we'll be relentlessly invited to worship services, places where we can lose ourselves and be caught up in spiritual ecstasy, ecstasy, we're taken out of this world, or else we'll be confronted by a charismatic spirituality that urges us to seek miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit. In both cases, and in other cases beyond these, being a faithful husband, or a godly mum, or an ethical employee, those kind of things won't be interesting enough or exciting enough for, for these people. They won't capture the imagination. Friends, whenever we take away the, the flesh and blood reality of Jesus, we dramatically change what it means to love Jesus. All of a sudden, our love has nothing much to do with real life and real people. It has nothing to do with loving our families and loving our neighbors. And that's the spirit of Antichrist that John warns us about. He says that spirit that denies the fleshliness of Jesus, that spirit will hinder and kill love in your communities. I want to say one last thing in relation to these two enemies of love before we summarize and conclude the book as a whole. These things are inevitable. There'll always be sin in our community. And there'll always be, to a greater or lesser degree, a spirit of antichrist. This, this desire to escape um, down-to-earth tangible living and make our Christianity some sort of uh, super spiritual experience. Those are always going to be with us. So our job isn't to escape those. I think if we made that, our job would be frustrated. Our job instead probably is to be aware of them and to ensure that they don't have a grip on our lives as a community. 
I would say that that's, that's my job as a minister, as a leading elder in this congregation. But it's also the job of all the other elders here and all the other leaders in our congregation to ensure that we don't drift into unconfessed sinfulness on the one hand and super spirituality on the other. So these things, I think, are unavoidable. But we train ourselves in awareness. Right, let's, let's have a look at a little bit more new stuff this evening and then bring this book together. Because we're aiming for the, the end of First John this evening, I thought we'd have a look at the last verse. So turn with me to the, the final verse there in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 21, John says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I've been very open with you about the problems I have had and many other interpreters have had before me with, with John's train of thought. But I think with this final verse, he almost does, outdoes himself. What's he talking about? He hasn't mentioned idols at any point in the five chapters that precede. There's nothing there that has much to do with the biblical teaching on idolatry. Why does he close his letter in this way? Well, I think if we take a second look, well, I hope that we'll see the appropriateness of this ending, and maybe even its genius. You see, an idol is any god that isn't the true and living God. An idol is, is any God that isn't the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, revealed to us definitively in Jesus Christ. An idol is any form of divinity other than that. So John's making a point here that a community, let's go back to those couple of things that we've talked about, those couple of main themes, John's making a point that any community that denies sin is idolatrous. He says, in fact, if you flick back to chapter 1, verse 10, any community that denies sin makes God out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. If we deny sin in our community, and I think churches are brilliant at denying sin in their community, where else are people less open about their fallenness and their sinfulness than here in church? Where do we pretend more than here? So this, is, this isn't hypothetical. But any church that denies sin in its community is idolatrous. Whatever that church is worshipping, it's not worshipping the true and the living God. These people are, are worshipping, you know, they're, first of all, they're making God out to be a liar. If we say we're not sinning, we make God out to be a liar. We're not worshiping God. Probably we're only worshiping ourselves and reveling in our own ideas of our own goodness. I think John's making the point here as well that a community with the spirit of antichrist is idolatrous. If we deny the flesh and blood reality of Jesus, we can't at the same time be worshiping him as the Son of God. We can't be worshipping the true Son of God, born of a Virgin Mary in Bethlehem under Caesar Augustus. That's who Jesus was. He was as flesh and blood as you and I. He had blood pulsing through his veins. When you pinched him, it hurt. 
if we choose to worship anyone other than that Jesus, then we've fallen into idolatry. And that's what John's warning us against. He closes his letter and he says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. You know, it really struck me how easily and how, maybe how pervasive idolatry is in the church, even in quite churchy things. You know, I think when we think of modern idolatry, we maybe think of materialism or, you know, celebrity or whatever. But what about our own churchy idolatries? Our denial of sin, it's an idolatry. Our super spirituality, it's an idolatry. It's worshiping a God other than the God revealed to us in flesh and blood in Jesus Christ. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols, says John. I need to hear that advice. And as I said a moment ago, the leaders of our congregation need to hear that advice when the latest church growth strategy rolls into town and we have to work out how to be faithful to God in that context. I want to spend our last few minutes together taking a zooming out from, from the book of, of 1 John, just getting a feel for one or two last major dynamics in the book. Whenever you take a step back from John's sermon on love, and look at the whole, one of the most noticeable things, and we've hardly probably even noticed this, one of the most noticeable things about love is that he commands it. Now, how countercultural is that? Think of how we speak of love. We talk about falling into love or falling out of love. We talk about love at first sight because we recognize the, the impulsiveness of it, of human attraction. But for John, there's something very different. He commands love. It's not a chosen, or it's not an accident, but it's a chosen behavior. In chapter 4, verse 21, he says of God, he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. If it's, if it's interesting that John commands love, another thing that strikes you when you read the whole of 1 John through, is how relentless he is in these commands. Now, I don't think, whenever John commands people over and over and over again to love one another, you've got to make a decision about that. Is he massively naive? Is he somebody who thinks, if I command people often enough to love each other, they'll have a crack at that and it'll work? Or, is John somebody who's commanding us to love one another, knowing every bit as well as we do that it's not going to work? That we're not really going to make a great success of it? That like all of God's people who have gone before us will not do this to any great level of satisfaction? I'm inclined to think that's where John's coming from. He knows we aren't going to succeed at this, but he still insists and he doesn't water it down. He doesn't qualify it in any way. He says, God has given us this command. Whoever loves God must love his brother. 
friends, I have grown up in Ulster. I've had many wonderful and powerful types of Christian living uh, modeled to me. But the reality is, if John's right here, it doesn't matter what else we do in our churches. If we don't love one another, then we're not living the life God has called us to. John says in chapter 2, verse 4, that if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ but disobey the love command, we're liars. And that's pretty blunt language. It's not what you'd expect from a pastor, but it's what Pastor John says here. So he's making a point. He's saying it doesn't matter how much we know and how dearly we cling to Reformed theology. He's saying it doesn't matter how many missionaries our church sends into the world. He's saying it doesn't matter how many prayer meetings we go to and how high we lift our hands at worship services. He says if we hate our brother and sister, if we don't love them, we've missed the whole thing. We're in the dark, he says in chapter 2 and verse 9. Friends, if Kirkpatrick Memorial is really to be a community that's faithful to Jesus Christ, and I hope, I hope that's your burden for this place. I hope your burden goes beyond seeing it grow a little. It goes beyond seeing it reawakened after a period of slumber. I hope your burden for this place is to see it become a a, a faithful place where we live out the, the things that God has called us to. If that's our heart's desire, then we must be growing as a community of love. If we're not, then we've missed it. Whenever we're faced here with John's relentless and unqualified commands that we love one another. I don't know how your mind works, but I start scrambling for definitions. What do you mean, John? What does it mean to love one another? We become a bit like the lawyer in Luke chapter 10. Do you remember the guy who's just been told, what's the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, who is my neighbor? What's he asking there? He wants to know who his neighbor is so that he knows how to obey the command. But actually, he wants to know who isn't his neighbor so he doesn't have to love them. He wants to know the extent of his obligation so that he knows where he isn't obliged. And I think we're a bit like that when it comes to this command to love. We want the definition of love so that we know what we have to do and what we can get away with not doing for the people around us. But we never find that. We never find a a biblical definition of love that says, if you do A, B, and C, that's good enough. You don't have to do D to Z. And really, I think that makes a lot of sense. 
Because what it means to love a person depends entirely on who that person is and what context we interact with them. Take my relationship with Claire, for example. Sometimes I'll tell Claire that I love her. And those words spoken at the right time will will sound like love to her. They'll be good. Sometimes I'll I'll buy her a bunch of flowers or, or a small gift. And again, at that moment, that will, will be a good way to demonstrate my love to her. But if I come down the stairs at home and I find that she's busy with Patrick and Sophie needs her nappy changed, then me telling her, oh, Claire, you know, I really love you. And, you know, here I have a bunch of flowers in one hand and a box of chocolates in the other. Those aren't going to feel an awful lot like love to her at that moment. And until I get down on my hands and knees and and sort Sophie out in the way that she needs sorted out, it won't have been an act of love. Nobody can ever tell us what it means to love another person or how to love somebody in the pew beside us. That's left up to us to work out. And every time, it's like an adventure in creativity. We give of ourselves and we look for a new way. But don't don't expect to come to God's word and find a, a list. If you do these things, you're loving other people. No, we've got to we've got to enter into this wholeheartedly and creatively, and then we can be the kind of people God has called us to be. At the end of the day, in his letter, John has told us all about love. He said, he's told us and reminded us that God loves us. And then he's told us, right, go now and love other people. A few years ago, I read a passage in Dallas Willard's wonderful book, Renovation of the Heart, where he spoke of the four movements towards perfect love, he calls it. And perhaps for the first time, I understood how comprehensive this life of love is that God has called us to. Let me try and explain this to you. He said that the first movement of love is God's. And and that's what John tells us in chapter 4, verse 19. He first loved us. So the first movement of love, God loves us. But then a, a second, a miraculous thing occurs we, we reach a point, some of us, where, where the love of God for us breaks through into our lives and we respond. We find ourselves able to love God. Maybe it's, maybe it's Jesus at first, our Savior who died on the cross for us. We find ourselves loving Jesus. It, it begins to gather a momentum in our heart. And then we, then we love the Father and the Spirit too. So the second move is that we learn to love God. But then there's a a third movement which can't be separated from the second. Our love for God's people. God says, you can't love me without loving my people. So we learn to love the people around us. It's a slow thing. It's a slow discipline to learn. But over time, we find that we're able to do it more and more and more. We learn to love people. And then the fourth 
movement of love, if you think about it, it's a sort of a logical outworking of it. If in our churches we're all people who are loving other people, a wonderful thing happens, and we find that love comes to us. Because we are the people whom our brothers and sisters in the pews near us have been called to love. And as they do that, we find ourselves loved. You see what a wonderful circle this, this comes to be. We're loved by God, and we love him in return. We learn to love others, and they love us in return. Just a, a wonderful place to be, a community of love. And you know, as that happens in our midst, as this love begins to well up, as it begins to, to move in us and through us, we will be changed. We will be changed in ways that we can't be changed until this happens. Love always changes people. I was struck when I read Alex Ferguson's autobiography. He tells of his journey to the new camp in Barcelona in 1999 to go to the Champions League final to face Bayern Munich. And he says this, Among all my bright memories of the most dramatic climax ever produced by a European Cup final, there's an equally vivid recollection of a quiet moment a few hours before the new camp exploded into delirium. I was making my way on the team coach at Manchester United's hotel on the coast. I was about to begin the short journey into Barcelona for the biggest night of my professional life when my son Jason came to me and he said, Dad, if you don't win tonight, it won't change things. You'll still be a great manager and we all love you. And Alex Ferguson, his comments reveal much about the power of love. He says this, who could fear anything after hearing words like that? Love changes people. It takes away their fear and it allows them to be all that God has created them and called them to be. Let's close just now and wrap up this series. There's been a lot of repetition here. John's gone over and over and over the same stuff over and over again. I wonder what we made of that repetition. Did we find it boring? Maybe there's a better way to understand what John's doing here. Maybe he's trying to develop in us a patience. Maybe he's trying to convey to us that this is going to take a long, long, long time. But if we are going to be God's people in this place, then I don't think in the long run we're going to find these commands to love boring. Instead, we're going to find John's call here, just a, a wonderful uh, energy in our community together. John talks about love first one way, and then he turns it around and he talks about it another way. Then he shifts the tenses 
Then he puts it negatively and then he puts it positively. He appeals to our experience. He refreshes our memory with allusions from the Gospels. He insists that Jesus is the definition of love. even raises his voice from time to time and uses some hard words. He talks about liars and murderers and hate and antichrist. But in the end, he says one thing. Always the same thing, more or less. He says, God loves you. Christ shows you what it is to love others. Now you love. 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 Just do it. Let us pray.